Welcome to Diving Deep, part of the Fixing Healthcare podcast series. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur, also host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was a CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books will go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. This is the 100th episode of Fixing Healthcare, and I believe it would be the perfect time to examine what has improved in healthcare since we started the podcast five years ago, what has gotten worse, and what has stayed the same. Robbie, let's begin with three things which are better in healthcare now compared to what existed when we first started to broadcast Fixing Healthcare. Jeremy, one triumph is the introduction of mRNA vaccines. That technology has been hypothesized as a potential source of vaccine for over a decade, but COVID-19 demonstrated the validity of the concept, and that means we'll be better prepared for the next pandemic when it strikes. A second improvement is the development of drugs to help reverse obesity. We discussed the introduction in our last episode. They, along with lifestyle medicine, now offer a potential to reduce the prevalence of chronic disease in the United States. And third, Congress has taken action, finally, to rein in exorbitant drug pricing. Even though the first year of the program won't be until 2026 and legal challenges have been brought, elected officials now seem willing to make the difficult decisions and pass the legislation needed to help the American people obtain the medications they need and deserve. What about three things that have gotten worse? Jeremy, one of the things that has become worse is American longevity, partially as a result of the more than 1 million deaths from COVID-19. Americans are living two years on average less than when we started the podcast. A second problem that that continues to become worse is maternal mortality, particularly for African-American women. The chance of an American Black woman dying is greater than the sum of the next two industrialized countries added together. And finally, the mental health of our country is in decline with anxiety, depression, and suicide rising, not just for adults, but also for adolescents and kids. And what's the same? Jeremy, unfortunately, most of American healthcare has remained the same. It's failed to improve, and that's very problematic. I'd point to three areas where improvement has been elusive impacting tens of millions of Americans. The first is that healthcare remains unaffordable for at least half of our nation. With rising premium prices and growing out-of-pocket expenses, people are delaying medical care and rationing the medications they take, including life-essential drugs like insulin. We continue to spend nearly double what all other industrialized countries in the world do with outcomes that lag at least a dozen peer nations. The second area where there hasn't been improvement are the racial disparities in medicine. Despite talking about the problem for a decade, Black patients continue to die younger, fail to receive equivalent medical care, even when 
there are no economic differences between black patients and white patients, and black patients die more frequently from COVID-19 than white individuals. And finally, in spite of 90 million Americans enrolling in Medicaid last year, our nation continues to have 30 million uninsured individuals, and there's no plan in place to reduce that number anytime in the future. With that as a backdrop, let's shift to one of the topics you mentioned, obesity and the new drugs that can produce major weight loss. As our listeners know, these medications have dominated healthcare news for many months now and have generated contentious debate. How big of a problem is obesity, Robbie? Jeremy, on average, obese individuals experience major hardships in life, particularly from a health perspective. They suffer from higher rates of diabetes, musculoskeletal problems, cancer, and heart disease. And as a result, they die younger. An estimated 7 in 10 Americans, these are adult Americans, are currently overweight or obese. The combination of overweight and obese, according to the National Institute of Health, results in an estimated 300,000 preventable deaths per year, with extreme obesity lowering life expectancy by 14 years on average. And we're seeing ever higher rates of obesity in children and teenagers. In total, obesity costs our nation an estimated $260 billion annually in inpatient and outpatient care. Of course, not every overweight individual will suffer these medical problems and healthcare issues can arise for people at normal weight. But statistically, obesity is a major health risk factor. Scientists aren't certain whether weight gain is caused primarily by genetics, social influences, or individual will. But what's clear is that most efforts to lose weight ultimately fail. Calorie counting and exercise programs, they help short-term. But what most dieters come to recognize is that they, have, they regain nearly all of their weight within a few months of starting a diet, even with the help of America's $150 billion diet industry. What made you write about this topic in a recent Forbes article? Jeremy, as a healthcare leader, I've been aware of and concerned about the challenges the obesity epidemic poses for the United States for many years. It's hard to imagine our country being able to grapple with the ever higher prevalence of chronic illnesses without finding ways to help people manage their weight. Three factors, however, have crystallized the relevance of this issue for me. The first was the data on the efficacy of these drugs. As I'm sure we'll discuss soon, they work. Second, there was a report from the Pediatric Society recommending shifting the specialty's perspective on obesity in childhood from one of moderation to a variety of aggressive approaches, including starting kids as young as 12 to 14 years of age on these medications, and in more extreme cases, considering bariatric surgery. Finally, I read a powerful article by Ruth Marcus, the Washington Post opinion editor, that detailed her weight loss journey. And I thought at that point, everything had become so mainstream that it was a time to, to tackle this issue. What did the piece say? I was impressed by Ruth Marcus's openness and honesty. Like many Americans, Marcus had long endured rude comments about her weight. 
In the article, she described how she had dreaded the daily ritual of getting dressed, and she hid from the camera in social situations. Then she explained how two years ago, life began to change. She said, as I write this, and this is a quote, I have lost 40 pounds, an astonishing quarter of my body weight. She then went on to report that her weight had stayed off thanks to Ozempic, a once a week injectable drug originally designed to help patients with diabetes. And she talked in detail about how many activities she could now do that weren't possible when she carried the excess number of pounds. And I could just imagine how positive that would be for millions and tens of millions of Americans. Can you tell listeners a little bit about Ozempic and the other medications that result in weight loss? Jeremy, these medications were developed for patients with diabetes. They vary somewhat in their exact chemical structure, but like Ozempic, all are in a class of compounds that are called glucagon-like peptide 1, or for short, GLP-1. Some of the more recent medications combine a GLP-1 drug with a second peptide, but all these peptides are naturally occurring substances that work by telling the pancreas to produce more insulin after we eat, thus helping to control blood sugar. What happened was in treating patients with diabetes, researchers recognized that most of them lost a significant amount of weight. Now, scientists aren't sure exactly why. There's one theory that says that the reason is that these drugs slow stomach emptying and thereby would diminish hunger. There's another theory that says maybe they cause the brain to respond as though the stomach were full even when it's not. But whatever it is, what we know is that last year, more than 5 million Americans were prescribed one of these drugs for weight reduction. That all sounds great, Rabbi. What's the problem? Jeremy, as with any medication, these drugs do have side effects. Most are the side effects are GI-related, and they include nausea, stomach pain, constipation, and diarrhea. Also, these drugs have to be administered via an injection, although a pill is currently in development. But Jeremy, the big challenge isn't the side effects or the injecting. It's the incredibly high cost of the GLP-1 medications. As an example, the annual price of treatment can range from $12,000 a year for Manjaro to upwards of $16,000 per year for Agovi. As a result, most users, they have to either be wealthy or have at least a generous health insurance coverage. And compounding the economic challenge is the fact that the medications have to be taken for life where people will regain nearly all of the weight. In response to the large number of people wanting to obtain the drug to look better, rather than for diabetes, insurers have started clamping down on what's called off-label prescriptions. Already, several private insurance companies have sent threatening letters to doctors, warning them they'll be referred to state agencies and licensing boards for wrongly prescribing the drug to non-obese, non-diabetic patients for whom the FDA has not yet given approval. That sounds like an unstoppable force hitting an unmovable object, Robbie. Do I have it right? Jeremy, you've hit the issue right on the head. There are, in essence, two competing truths, which, as you note, are colliding. The first truth is that these drugs work like nothing before. GLP-1 treatments lead to significant and sustained weight reduction, 14 to 25 pounds per individual on average, during the medication course. While these drugs aren't effective for everyone, 
is now an unprecedented opportunity to fight obesity on a national scale and reduce as a consequence the likelihood of heart attack, stroke, and cancer. But the second truth is that despite these medical opportunities that are at hand, making these drugs available to all 100 million obese American adults, that would be completely unaffordable for the payers, be they private businesses, insurers, or the government. Though the medications could drastically roll back the nation's $260 billion in obesity-related medical expenses each year, prescribing them at the price that they are being sold today would cost the nation $1.5 trillion annually. And that would increase U.S. healthcare expenditures by as much as 25%. What's more, as we discussed earlier, GLP-1 medications are considered forever drugs. They require users to either maintain their dosage or regain most of the weight they lost. And as such, the $1.5 trillion annual price tag would continue each year for the foreseeable future. How could our nation resolve this conflict? Patients, payers, and government regulators are overwhelmingly in favor of having insurance cover the cost of Ozempic for patients with diabetes. But when it comes to prescribing GLP-1 for weight loss, that's where the opinions differ greatly. Insurers are eager to draw a hard line between those seeking prescriptions for appearance sake and those at heightened risk of disease or death from defined medical problems that already exist. They're happy to cover the use in patients with diabetes or other problems that are clearly medical. But as with cosmetic surgery, insurers believe that patients should foot the bill when the driving force is not a well-defined specific medical condition. Rather than debating whether obesity is a cosmetic or medical problem, I think that one way to resolve the disagreement would be to figure out how to make these life-saving drugs broadly available and affordable. How do you propose accomplishing that? Jeremy, I believe the U.S. government could lead the way. With up to half a million obesity-related deaths each year, the magnitude of the problem, I think, qualifies as epidemic and it justifies forceful government intervention. The current administration, with congressional approval, could initiate a nationwide campaign to fight obesity similar to what we did in Operation Warp Speed. You may remember that starting in 2020, Operation Warp Speed brought the public and private sectors together to accelerate the development, manufacturing, and distribution of COVID vaccines. Fueled by a $10 billion upfront investment, the operation helped companies produce several safe and effective vaccines far faster than anyone initially expected. As part of the program, the government purchased more than 1 billion doses at one-third the cost of the vaccine's current list price. More than a dozen drug makers participated, signing contracts contingent upon the, their success. How could the current administration replicate Operation Warp Speed to fight obesity without breaking the bank? Jeremy, working across multiple departments, including the NIH and FDA, the government would invest $4 billion up front. That's twice the average R&D cost to bring a new drug to market. 
And given the number of safe and effective GLP-1 medications that are already manufactured and others that are in the pipeline and likely to become available soon, it's probable that an entrepreneurial pharma or biotech company could research, develop, and patent a rival medication within a couple of years. In return for accepting government funding, the company that successfully develops a safe and effective weight loss drug would be required by contract to sell the medication back to the government for, let's say, $40 per dose, which is essentially $2,000 per patient per year, significantly below the retail price of the competing drugs. This, too, would be similar to Operation Warp Speed. And once the new drug was available, what would be the next steps? Jeremy, at the time, government-sponsored health plans and health programs like Medicaid and Medicare would make the medication available to all obese enrollees, that's roughly 60 million people, for a minimum of 10 years. The winning drug maker would benefit financially. The company would earn up to $1.2 trillion in sales over the contract's lifetime, and they wouldn't have to shoulder any R&D costs to obtain it. Meanwhile, by providing the drug to more than half of all obese individuals, the program would reduce medical expenses in the United States by up to $130 billion annually, or $1.3 trillion over 10 years. And this would make the total effort cost neutral for the U.S. government and taxpayers. And of course, the program would simultaneously usher in tremendous public health benefits with a positive ripple throughout the U.S. economy. What do you think would be the response? I suspect that there would be two responses. On one hand, people needing the medication, people desiring the drug would be very positive. But on the other hand, we could expect that such a program would spark outrage from small government advocates and legal challenges from drug manufacturers. But when pharma companies abuse patent laws and hold a nation hostage to egregious drug prices, I think they should expect the federal government will step in and put innovative solutions in place. When I look at this proposal, the only financial risk to the government, outside of, of course of defending the likely lawsuits, is failing in its search for a new drug. And if that happened, they'd end up wasting $4 billion. But that's a relatively insignificant sum compared to the potential healthcare benefits and the financial tailwinds that would be generated if success were achieved. By getting access to the drugs and Medicaid patients who are struggling both medically and financially today, they would have the opportunity to both reverse obesity and improve their health status. And as a result, many obese individuals who today receive disability benefits would be able to reenter the workforce in the future. If successful, this approach would reduce state and federal government medical costs. It would help people return to the workforce and generate millions of dollars of savings that state, local, federal governments could invest in education, infrastructure, and public safety. Finally, by including Medicaid beneficiaries at the start of the program, this approach would help reduce income-based health disparities in the United States. Jeremy, I believe the role of government is to protect the health and financial well-being of the nation. Fulfilling that function led to a life-saving COVID vaccine. Doing so again, I think, is the best option our nation has to address the growing obesity epidemic that Americans face. What would you tell people who worry that using this approach would medicalize obesity? Jeremy, I don't believe that drugs alone are the solution. I'm a major proponent of lifestyle medicine. 
I've seen patients through diet and exercise reverse their diabetes and greatly diminish their risk of cardiovascular disease. But I'm also a realist. I don't see food producers diminishing their use of refined carbohydrates, despite the positive impact it would have on people's health. I don't see fast food businesses starting to serve vegetables and fruits. As you know, Jeremy, I run five or six miles a day. But if I had to carry an extra 50 pounds on my back, I doubt I'd make it past the corner. To me, this is a tool in the armamentarium people could use to reverse decades of weight gain. It won't be the sole solution. It'll be a great start for millions of people. Ultimately, I believe it will need to be used in conjunction with health coaching and lifestyle interventions. Making these types of bold changes in healthcare requires confident, courageous, and competent leaders. I know you watched all four seasons of Succession. Uh, what can people learn from the various characters? Jeremy, Succession, for leaders unfamiliar with the show, centers on the uber-wealthy Roy family, majority owners of the global media and entertainment subsidiary Waystar Royco. The plot revolves around the bullishly Machiavellian patriarch, Logan Roy, and his four adult children, each of them seeking both control of the family business and their dad's approval. During its run, the show's endless infighting and fascinating archetypes captivated viewers. But as you suggest, the 39-episode series also provided enduring lessons in dysfunctional leadership, which I think can be applied directly and saliently to the U.S. healthcare system. Can you expand on the similarities? Happy to. As with Waystar, Royco, the institutions of medicine, by that I mean hospitals, medical groups, insurers, pharma, and med tech companies, need excellent leadership just to survive. With millions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of jobs resting on the decisions of top administrators, any major flaw in character, in personality, can prove fatal erasing decades of organizational success in a relatively short amount of time. In any industry, poor leadership can undermine performance and threaten livelihoods. In healthcare, poor leadership, it puts the lives of patients at risk. Given how slow progress in healthcare has been, I believe we don't currently have the leadership needed for transformation in the United States today. That's not to say there aren't some are the excellent individuals, but clearly there are problematic ones as well. Based on the characters in the show, I can easily identify at least five dangerous types of leadership personalities that I have personally seen in healthcare. Let's start with Connor Roy, the oldest of Logan's four children. I think of Connor as the prototypic delusional leader. In the show's second season, Connor launches his U.S. presidential campaign on a no-tax platform. When the eve of election arrives, he's polling at less than 1%, yet he refuses to step aside and support a different candidate. He's convinced he is capable of doing the job and that he has a reasonable chance of being elected. Like Connor, healthcare's delusional leaders overestimate their abilities. Their ideas are unrealistic and their vision for the future, pure fiction. Even when disaster stares them in the face, they can't see the folly of their ways. But no matter how outlandish their outlook, Delusional leaders will always find apostles among the disenfranchised who themselves feel undervalued and overlooked. When confronted with the harshness of reality, deluded leaders and their followers double down. 
They insist that everyone else is myopic. Just follow and you'll see they demand. Unless senior executives or board members step in to relieve this type of leader of power, the organization will be as doomed as Conor Roy's bid for the presidency. Unfortunately, in healthcare, recognizing incompetency and taking action are, are things that most boards are very slow to do. How about Kendall Roy, the heir apparent at the start of the series? Jeremy, he represents the narcissistic leader. On the surface, Kendall is by far the most capable and experienced candidate to, to succeed his father. He's a smart and articulate heir who appears to be up to the task of CEO. But underneath the gold plating, his every action is reflexively self-centered. As such, when the time comes to sacrifice something of himself for the good of the company, he freezes and falters. His decisions are corrupted by the compulsion to put himself first. Like Kendall's health cares, like Kendall, health cares, narcissistic leaders bask in praise and blind loyalty. They reject and punish those who provide honest feedback and fair criticism. Their obsession with status and self-importance blinds them to the long-term threats and opportunities alike. Unlike delusional leaders who consistently fail because their vision cuts across the grain of reality, the narcissistic leader's passion for winning may advance an organization in the short run. But long-term, their flaws will be exposed, and invariably their weaknesses will be manipulated by seasoned competitors. Across four seasons, Kendall can't fathom that anyone else might be a better choice to run the company. As a result, he underestimates a rival CEO who's seeking to acquire Waystar, and he overestimates the loyalty of his siblings. In the end, he's left hopeless and broken. What about Roman, the ill-mannered child? Jeremy Roman, the youngest Roy son, as you imply, is brash and witty, but he's also unpredictable and unrestrained. His penchant for foul language and cutting insults, they make for good television, but they're the telltale signs of immaturity and insecurity. Like all immature leaders, Roman's addicted to novelty and excitement, often acting without regard for the consequence. He's fast talking and loud, which makes him likable enough for many to overlook his incompetence, but he's incapable of filling his father's shoes. Immature leaders get promoted before they're primed and ready. They often lack boundaries and excel at the sport of making others uncomfortable. At times, they seem more interested in causing a scene than creating results. They chase big ideas, if only for the adrenaline rush, but they can't accurately calculate whether the risk they're taking, the risk of failure is 20% or 80%, and this makes them very dangerous as leaders. They don't realize there's a big difference between being the president of a fraternity and the CEO of a multi million or multi-billion dollar corporation. How about Shiv, Logan's only daughter? Jeremy, she's what I think of as the political leader. In a world of deluded and despotic men, Shiv comes across as the voice of reason. Smart and strategic, relaxed and composed, Shiv carefully cultivates new allies, but she never really establishes an identity of her own. And this makes her an excellent political consultant the job she had in her dad's company, but a very poor candidate for CEO, the job that she really wants. Political leaders are better at advancing within an organization than advancing the organization itself. 
Like chameleons, these leaders change with the scenery, shift alliances and values as the organizational power waxes and wanes. While they're busy focusing on rumors and relationships, they fail to muster real-life business acumen and experience. In healthcare, clinicians rarely respect those who play organizational politics. Once political leaders have accrued enough power and advanced their careers to the max, their shallow alliances and inability to drive performance leave them stranded at the top with nowhere to go but down. You said five personality types. Logan only had four kids. Who is the fifth? Although technically not a Roy, Tom, Shiv's husband, is an eager aspirant for CEO. He represents the compromised leader. Once appointed head of Waystar's struggling cruise division, Tom conceals damaging information to protect his father-in-law. Tom is a willing henchman, ready to sacrifice his ethics for a shot at the corner office. To advance his interest, Tom repeatedly compromises his integrity, first with Logan, then with Kendall, and eventually Lucas Matson, the incoming global CEO who completes the hostile takeover of Waystar. In what proves to be Tom's final interview for the U.S. CEO job, Matson asks him whether he'd be willing to play the role of, quote, pain sponge, absorbing any negative fallout the company may experience. After he responds positively, Matson tests him further by mentioning that he'd like to have sex with Shiv. While viewers squirm in their seats, Tom doesn't object. For him, every compromise is simply a means to an end. Compromised leaders are skilled at making promises. They seek support by vowing to fulfill wants and palliate pains. Depending upon who these leaders aim to please, they're willing to some days slash budgets and other days raise salaries, regardless of the financial impact on the business. Ultimately, they'll do anything to keep people happy, even if they sink the company in the process. I love your description of failed leaders and the ways they undermine their own success. What makes leaders successful, Robbie? Jeremy, in the final season of Succession, Logan tells his offspring, I love you, but you are not serious people. He's both accurate and, of course, accountable. Logan was not a serious father, and as a result, his kids were poorly equipped for life and leadership. The healthcare industry is replete with stories of unsuccessful institutions falling on hard times under poor leadership. Although there's no one way to run an organization, all great healthcare leaders, I believe, share three characteristics. Let's take them one at a time, Robbie. What about the first one? Jeremy, the first is a clear mission and purpose. Leaders need to create a vision, align people around it, and motivate them to succeed. To accomplish these tasks, executives may use carrots and sticks, Incentives and disincentives, positive and negative reinforcement, but all of these tactics will fail unless they reflect a clear and consistent mission and purpose. Years ago, former Centers for Medicare and Medicare Services Administrator Don Berwick started a program with an audacious goal of maximizing patient safety and preventing unnecessary deaths. He called it the 100,000 Lives Campaign. And when he spoke of the program, he leaned hard on its mission. He didn't present metrics, statistics. No, he talked about the weddings and the graduation ceremonies that parents and grandparents would be able to attend thanks to the program and the people behind it. 
Even hard-weathered clinicians in the audience had tears in their eyes as they imagined parents and grandparents who otherwise would have been dead sitting there applauding their offspring. Financial incentives, they drive change in healthcare, but rarely achieve the outcomes intended. Everyone engaged in 100,000 Lives campaign knew exactly what they needed to accomplish, and they were committed to do so. What about a second characteristic all excellent leaders possess? Jeremy, the second one I would say is experience and expertise. Bold ideas and glittering promises, they capture the attention. Words can be powerful and relationships can take aspiring leaders far. But when it comes time to turn big plans into reality, there's no substitute for a leader who's been there and done it effectively. Exceptional performance, not just promises. That's what separates great leaders from the rest, and it differentiates success from failure. In every industry, past performance is the best predictor of future success. Of course, poor leaders can get lucky, and they can do well for a while, and even great ones can end up failing in bad circumstances. But the odds, they always favor those who've achieved recurring success throughout and across their careers. What's the third characteristic, Robbie? Jeremy, the third one that I would select is personal integrity. Emerging leaders can work on their weaknesses. Coaching, training, and even therapy can help them quell maladaptive behaviors and compensate for their inexperience. Often what they're able to do is to hide the problematic sides of their personalities for years. But everything changes when an emerging leader becomes the head of an organization and faces a crisis. As risks and pressures intensify, people fall back on the approaches and the habits that they learned in the past, particularly the more problematic ones. Whenever tested, each of the Roy children did exactly that. After Logan's death early in the final episode, the fatal flaws of each Roy's child, of each after Logan's death early in the final season, the fatal flaws of each Roy child come into clear view. As a result, the Waystar board made the safest choice for successor, none of the above. Like a true Shakespearean tragedy, the flaws of the characters in succession exceed their abilities. In healthcare, that's a guaranteed prescription for failure. And unfortunately, Jeremy, it's all too common. Before we conclude this episode of Diving Deep, I'd like to ask you about the interview we had with Dr. Abraham Verghese. Dozens of listeners have written to us talking about how much they appreciated what he had to say. I know you loved his book, The Covenant of Water. What's one theme you found particularly helpful relative to leaders and leadership? Jeremy, I was struck by the ability of Abraham's characters across three generations to navigate through seemingly opposing points of view and find solutions which prove to be better than either of the initial choices. Rarely have I seen healthcare leaders accomplish this feat. Too often in healthcare, as in politics, individuals become firmly affixed to one polar extreme or another. And as a result, they fail to identify a superior third option. When we talked about these new drugs for weight loss, I pointed out that they were incredibly effective, which would indicate they should be made broadly available, but I also noted they were exorbitantly priced, making them unaffordable for businesses, the government, and individuals. That conflict is where our nation rests today. 
with some people saying on one hand, provide them at any cost, and others saying, no, we can't afford to provide them broadly, so let's not start. You know, I can't guarantee that the idea of a government taking an active role would succeed, but if it did, it wouldn't be a compromise. It would be a radically different and hopefully far better solution. This is the kind of approach that I think American healthcare needs today. Can you give some examples of avoiding this type of binary thinking that came to your mind as you read Verghese's novel? Jeremy, one example I thought of is the ongoing debate among doctors and healthcare policy experts as to whether medicine is a science or an art. There are, of course, are strong proponents on both sides. As practitioners of applied science, physicians are taught to remain objective, weigh the evidence, render logical conclusions. In science, there is usually only one correct answer, be it related to biological processes or chemical reactions. The art of medicine by contract, that's subjective. Physicians reject the notion that there's only one way to treat a patient. They believe there should be an unlimited number of answers, each based on the preferences of the doctor. Today, these perspectives, they're at war. Science means one correct answer. Art implies an infinite number. One and infinite can't both be true. But this dichotomy can be resolved when we introduce the idea of time. I'd recommend we ask not which is right, but when is it best to use one approach versus the other? This century's massive leaps in medical knowledge, they've yielded clear evidence-based approaches to clinical practice. When and where they exist, doctors should follow them rigorously to achieve the best clinical outcomes. The idea that intuition will defeat science, it may feel good, but it's been proven not to be true. In contrast though, when it comes to addressing the anxiety and fear that patients experience, the art of medicine should rule supreme. Every patient is unique in this realm. How about a second dichotomy? Jeremy, there's a growing debate about end-of-life care, which, as you know, will be the theme of our next season later this fall. On one hand, there's a fundamental belief that doctors should always save a life at any cost. And this, of course, made sense for most of history, since physicians could do so little to make a major difference. But now, clinicians have the ability to extend the person's life through assisted breathing, intestinal feeding, urinary catheters, far beyond the point that life is worth living. And as a result, for many patients, the line between treatment and torture has become blurred. Rather than physicians making that choice, a third and better answer is ask the patient. As doctors, we all too often convince ourselves that's in the best interest of the patient to proffer hope, even when the chances of a positive outcome are minuscule. Contrary to this false hope approach, what patients actually desire, it's the truth. People who are dying want to know that their doctors will help control their pain when it becomes severe. They want the doctor to provide them with a full list of medical options and to promise not to desert them in their final days. Research has shown that when treatments prove futile, few patients desire to prolong the suffering. How about a final example? Jeremy, I hear ever louder debate about information technology, and that includes artificial intelligence, as to whether these IT applications are friend or foe. 
One reason for their skepticism is concern over patient safety. Medical professionals point to errors that technology makes, and they're unforgiving when it negatively impacts any patient. And yet in other areas of medicine, clinicians use a completely different criterion. They accept that surgical complications are inevitable and that medications will invariably have harmful side effects. They judge procedures and drugs by their net effect on the health of patients. In these situations where the benefits exceed the risks, doctors embrace these treatments. Rather than desiring to see technology as 100% safe or concluding that it's inappropriate for clinical practice, why not use the same criteria for technology as we do for the rest of medical practice? Instead of starting with a zero risk threshold, let's begin by quantifying the potential benefits of information technology against today's reality. As an example, research demonstrates that patients have a very difficult time obtaining convenient, high quality, 24 by seven care. Technology may not be perfect, but has the potential to be far better than what currently exists. Rather than describing a technological solution as either great or dangerous, we should ask ourselves, will it be better than what currently exists? Any concluding thoughts, Robbie? Jeremy, in this episode of Diving Deep, we've dealt with multiple complex and challenging issues. Should payers be forced to fund the cost of highly effective drugs that risk bankrupting businesses and patients? Which is better, leaving medical decisions to doctors or demanding clinical consistency based on evidence-based data? Should doctors prolong life at any cost, even when it's highly unlikely that patients will ever get to go home or live a reasonable life? The key to resolving these challenges and ethical alternatives, I think it's leadership. It's individuals who feel comfortable raising difficult issues, encouraging discussion and debate, and helping people find solutions that are superior to either of the initial polarized questions. I recommend we continue this theme in next month's Diving Deep episode. And at that time, let's explore what it will take for our nation to achieve value-based care for all. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow at Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare Diving Deep with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Core. Have a great day.